Hello, and welcome to this edition of Two Worlds, One Country, the show here on WEHC and WISC FMYs and on podcasts where we look into the underlying causes of the rural-urban divide and talk to a really fascinating mix of folks who, in different ways, are working to overcome it. And today's guest fits that bill. By the way, I should mention that I'm your host, Anthony Flacavento, and the guest today is a friend and colleague of the last decade plus named Joe Fortier. He's up the road for me uh, not quite two hours in a little town called Radford, Virginia. And Joe is a fascinating individual who has two remarkable and very innovative businesses. I would say that they're both green businesses in their own ways that are contributing to the local economy and simultaneously helping to deal with some of our pressing ecological issues. Welcome, Joe. Thank you, Anthony. That's a great introduction. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Well, like most of what comes out of my mouth, it came out without any planning or preparation. <laughs> so, But there's, <laughs> there's so much to say about you, I could have gone on. So I, I want to start with a little bit about you personally, kind of where you grew up and what some of your influences were, and then kind of quickly morph into how those life experiences or education or anything else moved you into the world of, of housing and community development. Very good. So I was born in Vermont um, back in the 1962 and grew up in a small town, uh, 2,500 people on a lake in the country. Um, and a lot of my feeling for the environment has to do with that. I, you know, you, you get connected, you go out, you see the beautiful lake every morning, you walk through the woods every day, and you can't, you just can't help but feel the connection, mm -hmm. which so many of us have lost as we go forward in life. And so I, I went to Dartmouth College, and after, in, in 1984, when I graduated, I did as many people did, and I went tried to make a living given the economy, which was not particularly good at that time. So I worked for various companies, mostly in financial and investment management in the corporate world and, and did relatively well. We moved with my wife, Shelly, through New England and to California and back. Um, and then we had our son, Sam. And I made a decision at that point that what I was working on didn't really speak to me. Um, and I stayed home with Sam to raise our kids uh, for five years. And during that time, I read Dana Meadows' Limits to Growth, uh, which profoundly affected me. And um, I would recommend as reading for anybody um, who tries to understand this, this planet that we're living on and, and what we face as humans. And uh, I, I wrote Dr. Meadows, and uh, we had several good discussions. And she steered me to a group at that time. We were in San Francisco, California, uh, the Energy and Resource Group at Berkeley, California, where I got my master's degree um, and spent a lot of time studying renewable energy and sustainability. Mm. Um, and this was back in 2000. Uh, and then I we moved to Blacksburg, Virginia to get back to the country where my, uh, my, my wife's parents are from. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found in 2000, moving back to coal country, that we moved here. Um, and I care deeply, having studied global warming and its impending effects and renewable energy and all the way things could be different. And coming to Southwest Virginia, nobody cared. <laughs> Is that what you experienced uh, which, in 2000? It was. It was yeah. a shock to me. You know, even educated people, they didn't want to talk about global warming. They didn't want to talk about renewable energy. They just, it just wasn't a thing. It was everybody was busy living their lives and the ability to look forward didn't seem to be part of the equation. Mm -hmm. And so, um, 
having moved to the country with two kids and a wife and uh, I looked around and I said, okay, how is it that we're going to make a living and yet still try to increase the values that we care about? Um, and so we started a construction company and our construction company was uh, founded on two principles. One was to try to save old buildings on main streets from being torn down um, and repurposing them and putting them into productive use. And the other was to build extremely energy efficiency, efficient houses. Um, most people don't realize how much where they live contributes to carbon emissions. Yeah. And they don't understand um, how much that um, changing that is a radically environmental act that is also in their own self-interest. Yeah. And so um, that's what we settled on. And that was 2001? What, what was the that time was, That was 2001. We did our okay. first project on Main Street in Radford where we saved a building that was sitting there vacant for about 20 years. And we oh repurposed it into a, a community coffee shop, a local ice cream shop, and three apartments upstairs. What could be um, better than that? Coffee, ice right. cream, and, it, and, and housing. We've done quite a few projects through uh, our area, the New River Valley, where we've taken old buildings on Main Street and repurposed them. And whenever we can, we try to build in energy efficiency. So some of them have solar on the roof, certainly increasing the insulation in the systems, putting in new energy efficient systems to lower the environmental. Yeah. And that, um, that business is called Taylor Hollow Construction, right? It is. Yeah. It is. And it builds um, housing for people in about 60% of our housing houses working class people who make between 60 and 80 percent of the uh, area median income they call it so it's it's considered low-income housing by label but it's really working people you know who just need clean well-lighted places to live and, and, uh, and that's how we treat it okay. and talk about the environmental kind of motivations and, and a little bit about the environmental impacts of both business sure uh, I, I I'd be happy to so having been exposed there are many solutions all around us for the problems that we face if we're just willing to look around and embrace them and be a little bit brave in, 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 in trying them. The panel company is an example of that. Buildings in America have been built mostly the same way since the 1900s. But uh, until recently, people really didn't care how you built the building. You know, more than 30% of the emissions in the United States and the energy use is caused by just the operation of the buildings that we live in and work in. Hmm. So the panel company came about looking around for a better way to build buildings that provided the comfort and the strength and the reliability, you know, to last hundreds of years, but also dramatically cut the amount of energy that is used for heating and cooling. And so we were looking for a technology to do this that was simple and easy to execute and put up in the field that was reliable and had been tested, but also really did the job. And uh, so we actually started our first panel job. Um, I had my, my brother-in-law was running a small panel company up in New England at the time. And we were built, we were trying to build a house here on our farm that, that embodied all of the values. So, you know, solar energy on the roof, solar hot water, really easy to heat and cool, but yet still, you know, didn't look like a science project that <laughs> had the aesthetics that people would walk in and say, okay, this is really great. And the energy efficiency is just, you know, we don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. Right. It's just a good house. And so we built that panel using Taylor Hollow Construction with panels we ordered from Vermont. And as we were building it, they go up really easily. It's easy to build a house out of them and they work so well. I'm like, well, why don't we have a panel manufacturer there were none in the mid-Atlantic region. Why don't we start a panel company? Mm -hmm. That was in 2008. 
Okay. Um, we, we acquired an old abandoned Goodyear tire and rubber plant and then spent the next year cleaning it and cleaning it and cleaning it again. Uh, and then we put um, 360 solar panels on the roof um, and we opened our doors uh, in 2010, uh, our brave little panel factory that could, and uh, nobody came. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Um, how, however, however, we were able to get through. If you remember, the real estate market was quite a mess back then. Yeah, yeah. Just, um, just coming and, out of the Great uh, Recession and all that, yeah. Yeah, and, and I have a long history of being an early adopter and getting there before the market does. Um, in this particular case, you know, we have grown steadily since those, and we're doing reasonably well. So our, our little panel factory, people people are starting to care now. Um, the message is getting out. And so that's how we got into to that business. And, and so we build with Taylor Hall Construction, we build for people very efficient homes uh, that use, you know, one third of the energy that's needed and and over the life of the building, that can cut down on hundreds of thousands of pounds of carbon dioxide emissions. It's oh. a remarkable number, and it's a more comfortable house, mm. Um, mm. It, you know. And and so that's really where we're trying to focus our efforts going forward is yeah. to to give people what they need in a house: the comfort, the aesthetic, the the beauty, the and um, and yet decrease the environmental emissions and save the money on utilities in, in the process. Yeah. Tell us about who buys the panel. We sell to builders and we sell to homeowners. Some of our, a lot of our business is driven by a homeowner who wants a, who's building their own house, uh, who is an environmentalist, who cares about their utility bills, who, who is, who wants the structural insulated panels. Um, and then we have the opportunity of educating their builder um, on how to put them up and how to use them. A lot of the times these people haven't done with it. And, and are they resistant? Are they resistant to it? Most builders or are they coming around or what? Yeah, Tony, they are. Um, uh, it depends on the builder themselves. Of course. The resistance is lessening right now because the building codes are finally evolving to a point. So there've been tremendous changes in the building codes, uh, and it's slow. It's really slow. Um, and we can talk about why that is and the resistance to that, but Finally, the uh, new building codes are demanding that houses be built better. And uh, builders change slowly. Um, and there is about a 10% of the builders market. They're the early adapters, and they get way out there in front, and they're willing to go with this, and we don't have a problem with them. Mm-hmm. 90% of the builders don't want to change, and of them, a good chunk of them want to build the lowest cost house as possible. Mm-hmm. So uh, those folks are very resistant to change. However, it's getting much better because they're afraid of not being able to satisfy the new building codes that are coming into place. Oh, okay. Um, right. It is much easier to use our system to build uh, a code compliant that passes the building inspections out of the box than it is to build with a pile of sticks and then go back and try to seal it so it is uh so it leaks less air and to provide the continuous insulation there are way more steps to try to do that successfully and some of the builders are starting to understand it's too hard you know why not just use a system that's designed to do it out of the box instead of trying to go back and make something that was never intended to be energy efficient try to make it energy efficient okay so let's talk and not too much detail because we're we've got a lay audience but let's talk about what these panels are like how do you make the panel and then how do you erect it? What's what's the I, process? I, I can I can I can do that. I'm I didn't fully answer your previous question. Oh, sorry. Anthony, and that is um, 
So we sell some to builders, some to people who are designing, people who are designing passive house or net zero energy houses, yeah. love our panels. It's a great way to do it simply and elegantly. So our number one spot for sales is in Virginia, but we ship all over the East Coast. And the farthest we've sent panels to has been Australia. Oh um, we sent them to Cyprus. We sent them to, uh, so we have some interesting stories if you want to hear them. Yeah. But, um, wow. you know, panels, panels are big. And so one of the reasons we wanted to start a panel company in an area that was underserved is because we can do so without creating an environmental impact of, of trucking, of sending them all. You know, so if someone's building in the Carolinas and they need panels, they can get them from us and not incur the emissions of having to truck them from a thousand miles away. Right, right, right. Okay, that's excellent. Great. Yeah. So now now tell us a little bit about the details of the technology. Yeah. Very, it's a very simple technology. It was actually the first panels were done by Frank Lloyd Wright, hmm. um, and they um, and they weren't very good. Um, but then they evolved, and then um, basically it's a very simple technology where you take two pieces of OSB and a, a foam EPS foam, which is a benign in its manufacture, and you create a sandwich. And this sandwich becomes really strong like an I-beam, and basically you use it for the walls and the roof and sometimes the floors of the house. Um, and just to clarify, OSB is oriented strand board, but it's essentially like a piece of plywood. People could think of it, right? A 4 by 8 sheet or 4 by 12 or something like that. That's exactly right. And so if you see a house being put up around America today, it is always clad in OSB. So it's what they it's what a traditional house will nail to the outside of a house to give it the sheathing that they then then attach the siding or the brick or so forth. Okay. So, forth. Right. so what we do is so instead is we make the entire wall in our factory and they can come in sections that are as small as a four by eight, as you had mentioned, or as big as a eight by twenty four oh, section. That, uh, uh, yeah, and so. The whole idea is that you flip up, we, we pre-cut all these in our factory, we take the plans and we translate it into these sandwich panels, which you then, um, we label them like this one's this corner, this is A1, wow. and you start in this corner and you, you flip it up, okay, and then you flip the next one up and you flip the next one up. And so we can set, we can set a wall or a house in a matter of a day or two, wow. whereas, and we can set a roof in a day. And so you can literally put up a really well-built, strong, with all of the insulation, all the sheathing, shell in a matter of days. And, um, and you say you, know, you flip them up, but something's got to hold them in place. So what secures them to the base and what secures them to each other, each panel? Sure. So we have a set of um, connection details that we have developed for all of these conditions. And so, you, you know, we, which we, we send out with the plans and it's all set up to go that way. So there are inserts that basically you attach it to you, let's say you're going on a slab, you would put down a plate on the slab and then the panel sets down over that plate and then you nail it off, you know, in a certain way. And then in the corners, the panels attach to each other with these long high tech screws hmm. that pull them together really strong. And so when you're done, you have a tremendously strong shell and uh, it's very, very airtight. And so it, it actually works out really well, particularly in these days where uh, I'm, I don't know if you've been watching the news there are weather conditions that we didn't have here 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've had tornado warnings in Blacksburg that have been real, and I've never seen them before. And one of the benefits of, that comes with this package is that it builds you a shell that is much more resilient to extreme weather events. So wow. we have pictures. Wow. We have we have pictures um, in our in our marketing material which show uh, a hurricane that came in and on the Galveston Beach. All the houses on that stretch 
are flattened. You see debris everywhere. There's one house standing. That house happens to be made of structural insulated panels. Wow. So wow. they're wow. they're much, much stronger against the, the racking, uh, the winds that we face now. And, and, and so that's a side benefit that people are going to care more and more about it. Yeah. I mean, in some places, that would be probably the driver for them to consider this is storm resilience. I mean, even for yeah. some people, even more than the energy efficiency. So you've got these tremendously strong things that can survive apparently hurricanes and who knows, maybe some level of tornado. Tell us about the energy efficiency. Um, some builders building old-fashioned stick-built homes will put more insulation in the walls, maybe five and a half inch rather than three and a half inch bat. Is that the the same then as the SIPS panels, the Acme panels, or are they more efficient even than that? So certainly when builders do that and improve anything that anything that is done to improve the energy efficiency of a house from the base level that's required is a bonus. So I'm, I'm advocating for that. It's not the same at all because um, the panels have continuous insulation that has been installed in a factory to precise specifications as opposed to. So if you've seen a house being built, they throw up the shell and then the insulating crew comes in and they throw in the insulation. And, and because it's all being done on the clock, you know, it goes in quick. And so they push it around the light switch and then they, they compress it over here. And so the uniformity of the installation, um, there have been a lot of studies which show that a house might be rated R14 for the insulation that the bad insulation that's in the wall, yet the net result of it after um, all of the cavities and gaps and of a, of a typical reasonable installation, not just you know, not a shoddy uh, one, a, a terrible one, yep. but it, it goes down to an R10. Wow. Um, wow. And then you have the issue of if you were to take an infrared camera and shoot it at a wall, you would see all the areas where the studs are that are not insulated that conduct the energy to the outside of the building. Whereas our, ours have continuous insulation. So if you take an infrared camera and you look at it, you won't see any hot spots or cold spots. Mm. Um, Cause there's no studs. Insulated. There's no studs. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. What's the actual R value when you build with these? Well, so um, so R value is only one measurement of energy efficiency. Okay. Just just I'm not going to get too geeky here, but there are, it, it's one of the other thing is air tightness. Okay. So those are the two things that determine. So the base rated R value plus how much uh, thermal bridging plus the um, amount of air tightness. All of that goes together. Most people don't realize that, that the air tightness of a house is actually more important than the R value. Hmm. You put all these together and you get a HERS rating, uh, and it, it's just a scale on you know how you rate a house's energy efficiency. And so a typical panel house will have a HERS rating in the 40s. Um, a typical house that's built to, to just the codes in Southwest Virginia, you know, is 100. And that means we the way the HERS rating works is it's about a 60% improvement of the energy used from the heating and cooling of the house. So it's fair to say they're more than twice as energy efficient, all things it is. factored in. It is. Um, yeah. you know, it takes a lot of energy. and, and Yeah, fabulous. I kind of want to move us to some of the larger questions. So you have these two successful businesses in uh, a part of the country that is struggling economically. You know, Radford, Blacksburg area, less so than the coal counties of Southwest Virginia and some of the rural agricultural counties, but still definitely uh, an area that, that needs good jobs. So sure. here's the last thing I'm going to ask about the businesses, and then I want to start to talk about the Rural New Deal, is are you able to make the homes affordable for everyday folks? And the second thing is, are you able to pay pretty good wages in your two businesses? 
Yeah, so um, they're two very different questions. They are. Um, I'm going to I'm going to start with the second one, and the the answer is is I think we pay very good wages to our. It's it's one of our core values. Uh, to us, for us to work in our businesses, it has it has to be good for the workers. It has to be good for the people we're doing the job for or the client. Um, and it has to be healthy enough to continue forward in time. So that's our our traditional, you know, our three-way value statement. We don't, do not subscribe into the fact that the current economic vogue, that you need to get your labor numbers down as much as they awesome. can be. Yeah. And, and that's an important part. You know, the idea that you can have a business, that you can have a certain set of personal values where you believe in people or you believe in God or you believe in community, and then behave differently at work <laughs> is, is, is a fallacy. Yeah, and it's yeah. one of the worst lies we tell each other in America that it's just economics. It's yeah. all okay. Yeah. So we're yeah. working with humans here. We're not working with machines. Great. Um, as far as being able to build affordably, we do better with our development projects through Taylor Hollow Construction to provide affordable housing through people. It's a difficult thing right now in America, uh, Tony, because building is expensive. Yeah. And we're talking about building houses that um, cost a little bit more than uh, the cheapest possible build for the benefit that's in them for the environment. So for me to be able to sit here and say we're able to serve a lot of people who don't have money to build in the traditional fashion, we don't know a way to do that. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. we try to we try to balance our profit position with enough to make sure that the company stays healthy with our benefit to the community and our benefit to the employees. It's a tough algorithm in building today. Yeah, sure. It really is. Of course, if you factor in, which I'm sure you've done the numbers, the long-term savings in heating and cooling bills, at least for a family with sort of a middle income, I can imagine that the the conclusion is something along the lines of you pay uh, a little more up front, whatever that is, 20, 30 percent more up front, but in the long haul, you more than get it back with the energy savings. Is that roughly true? No, it's true. It's it, it's true in spades, um, but it doesn't help you get someone into a house. Right. Sure. Although although there are some financing programs that are starting to consider the cost of operating in the amount that they'll lend you for a mortgage, but it's that's coming slowly, Tony. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but you know, once they're in the house, it will cost them less to operate it, and they'll have more money for the things that they really care about. Yeah. Absolutely. And and our last last uh, our construction company built a, an apartment building behind the old Prices Fork Elementary School, um, our last build, we use structural insulated panels. And the good news is, is that um, those are mo- low to moderate income tenants. And we've been able to save them remarkable amounts of money on their utilities. Wow. Fantastic. Um, and fantastic. so so that's money in their pocket. And, yeah. and, and that is helping the affordability. Yeah. Great. Well, I want to, this has been excellent, Joe. I want to wrap up with just some very brief thoughts from you about the Rural New Deal. I'm guessing because you run two businesses and, and work like crazy that you've not had a chance to read through it much, but I'll, I'll characterize the Rural New Deal for listeners. It's something that Ruby wrote because progressive Democrats of America came to us and said, we're progressive, but we don't know much about rural, and we want your help understanding rural, and then we want to do something about it. And so one of the outcomes of that new partnership was the Rural New Deal, is the Rural New Deal. In essence, it's a broad platform for federal policy primarily, a little bit of state, but primarily federal, to help 
generate much more rural prosperity and lasting prosperity so that it's not boom and bust. It's not based on phantom wealth but on real uh, capital and real wealth. And the, the essence of it is that it's while it's a, a federal platform, it's really bottom-up solutions. So, for instance, you and, and your two businesses were top of mind for me, along with many, many other creative uh, entrepreneurs I've worked with over the last four decades when we were writing the Rural New, New Deal because I was trying to think what kind of policies wouldn't just put money in small towns and rural communities but would put it in such a way that it actually generates local capacity, local capital, local wealth. So that's that's what we're trying to do through the Rural New Deal. It's much more bottom-up than top-down. What I'm wondering from you is what do you think – the federal government could do in that vein to help businesses like yours or some of the others that you've um, seen over the years that are that are trying to hit that triple bottom line of making a profit but helping community and being good for the environment. It's a really big question. Andy. It is. <laughs> it's a really big question, and I applaud your work. I really do. I was thinking about this. I think one of the things that is getting in the way of our making progress is there has become a disconnect between what's being done and what's being told to people and people understanding what helps the environment and their community and their future and, and, and all of the things that we care about. Um, and I was just thinking, you know, so we try very hard to incorporate what I consider to be the highest of progressive values, which is not the stuff that's off the edges that makes it's got to make economic sense or we fail as a company. Right. We don't have it. We don't have the government. So so it's, we've got to be good businessmen. I'm really tired of capitalists complaining and trying to get the rules changed so that they can succeed, uh, that harm either the community that they're in, the people that work for them, the ability to to and the environment. Um, you know, uh, I, I consider people who consistently advocate for better deals on these things or less regulation to be bad capitalists. You know, I feel like the government has focused on pouring money out, you look during the pandemic to business owners and then assuming that the workers would benefit. Uh, it just uh, hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, uh, so, so number one is programs that help people understand what's really going on. Okay. What's really happening with the environment and, and, and how to evaluate information so that you can pick what's real and what's propaganda. Mm -hmm. Um, there are a lot of stories about out there, and, and there are a lot of hardworking people who believe things that are in their own, you know, negative interest. They're, mm -hmm. they're, they're hurting them. Mm -hmm. And then they vote for people who advocate for these policies, and it becomes a self-feeding cycle. Right. Um, and, and I don't know how to break that cycle, but I feel like education as to what kind of things lead to a better community and uh, lead to, a, to, you know, what can be done instead of cutting taxes on corporations and very wealthy individuals. Right, right. You know, We've been trying that we, for the better part of 40 years. Hasn't exactly yielded great results. And then figuring out a way to encourage jobs that actually pay a living wage to, to try to be created. Figuring out a way. So, for example, one of the things that's frustrating in our business, Tony, is that building codes are always being fought. So we, we know we have this problem with buildings using too much energy, yet we're constantly watering down the, the codes for new buildings to make them more energy efficient because of the political 
entities that are involved in lobbying for it not to be done because they make a lot of money the way that it is. Mm-hmm. We've got we've to find a way to decouple the idea that making a profit is the number one purpose of business uh, or work. Yeah. If not, the, gotta, on, gotta, if not we, the only purpose, some, some would yeah, say. Uh, yeah. And yeah. start understanding what the long-term effects of the decisions and the policies that are being made. To me, the greatest danger to the rural way of life is you've got a lot of people who are working one job, maybe coming home and working on the weekends, whose spouse is also working that way, who are trying to raise their kids, corners of it, and everybody is just so stressed by the economics of it. There is a meanness that has crept into an American business that doesn't have the ability, doesn't include the worker's ability to make a good living and be good have time for their family and be good community members, you know? Yeah. yeah, And and I, and I I am not a socialist. I am not a a lefty, you know, communist. I am a very, very practical person. People matter. Well, Joe, I've really appreciated this interview. We're going to need to wrap up. It's been delightful to have on two worlds, one country to learn a little bit about your two businesses and how they are helping to not only create jobs, but build stronger communities and a, a more ecologically healthy environment. It's been my pleasure, Anthony, and um, thank you very much for having me. Great. Take care. This has been Two Worlds, One Country, our guest Joe Fortier in Radford, Virginia, and we'll look forward to seeing you all next time.